You can turn over to Acts chapter 2 if you like, the book of Acts chapter 2. Um, but before you get there, I want to show you a picture of one of the big news stories from this last couple of weeks. That look familiar to anybody? Yeah, the, the, the big story this past month involved this, this cargo ship called the Ever Given, which got spent several days actually spent stuck in the Suez Canal. Uh, blocking up one of the, the busiest waterways in the world and throwing parts of the world economy into all sorts of chaos. Uh, this was a major problem for a lot of people, and it was not a happy thing, but the Internet decided to have a little fun with it. Um, I'll just show you some of the different variations on the picture that came out as I was looking for that picture. I, I saw this one. Mm. Um, that's about right. Um, this apparently was one of the unsuccessful attempts to, to get the thing out of the, the canal. And of course, you can't have memes without this one. <clears throat> but uh, let's get it back to the original so we can spare Bernie the embarrassment. Okay, there we go. But, but the amazing thing for me uh, about this story was simply just the size of it, the magnitude of this, of this problem. The, the weight of this ship, the Ever Given's gross weight, was approximately half a billion pounds. Its length is about the same as the height of the Empire State Building. And it had firmly embedded itself, I think I read like 14 or 16 feet, into the muddy, rocky soil on the side of, of the canal. And this was also a pretty costly disaster. About one-seventh of the world's maritime trade goes through the Suez Canal, including about 10% of international oil shipments. So that was interrupted. There was about $12 billion worth of cargo that was waiting to enter the canal while the Ever Given sat there blocking the channel. Now, the reason I bring all this up is just to get you thinking in a certain way. I want to get you thinking in terms of really big problems, really heavy burdens, and, and really costly errors. Uh, because I'm going to be talking with you this morning about a problem that is, is bigger than the one you see there. A problem that is bigger than, than the running aground of this ship. Uh, a burden that is heavier than the weight of the ever given and an error that turned out to be much, much costlier than even this one was. I've decided to call this message the weight of Easter, the weight of Easter. And I'm going to be reading to you now from a couple of the sermons that the Apostle Peter preached just a couple of weeks after the Easter event. So turn to Acts chapter 2, starting in verse 22. This first part is on the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes down, and it's kind of like the, the first birthday of the church. And Peter gives the first Christian sermon, and there's a lot of people there listening to him. And he explains, first of all, that the reason they're all speaking in tongues and acting kind of crazy from the people's point of view is that they have the Holy Spirit. And then he gets into his message in, in verse 22. He says this, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Let me go on and skip over to 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Skip over to chapter 3, verse 11. This is another sermon that Peter preached, and in this case it was right after he and John had healed the man who could not walk, but he was begging by the beautiful gate by the temple, and after the healing, it it garnered a large crowd, and uh, Peter sees another opportunity to, to preach to people. So here in verse 11, while he, the man who had formerly been not able to walk, clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astounded, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, Why do you wonder at this, or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him well? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life, whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses, and his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. Now, it's only a couple weeks after, after Easter that these sermons get preached, and so you'd think as close as they were to the Easter event that they would start off happier, right? Like the sermon would be like, hey, y'all, I mean, somebody just rose from the dead. Isn't that awesome? God wins. Hooray! But that's not how it starts out. Before Peter can get to that part, he, he needs to go somewhere else first. And, and we need to go there this morning too, even though it's not going to be real pleasant at the beginning, because you will not appreciate the impact that Easter is, of the Easter event. You will not appreciate the joy that Christ's resurrection brings, and you'll not appreciate the healing that is available for you in Christ in every way in your life, unless you first go where Peter took those people that day on both of those sermons. And I want to take you there now for a while this morning. What Peter needed to do is he needed to remind the people there of their problem. He needed to remind them of what they had done. What they had done. I want you to use your imagination just for a minute. Imagine that you are unemployed. Okay, Some of you, maybe you don't have to imagine it, but hopefully only a few. But you're you're unemployed. Uh, You've been unemployed for a long time, and you're starting to get desperate. You need a job so badly. It's been months and you have not gotten the job and, um, and you're about ready to kind of settle for the first thing that comes down the pike if you can even get that. And all of a sudden you see it, a, an announcement of a job that is perfect for you. And you're like, no way, this really exists. And you look at it, it's kind of a last ditch effort and you apply for the job and sure enough, they call you back a few days later and they offer you an interview. And you are so excited because this job is so much more than anything you could have expected and it seems to be the only one out there. The pay is great, the hours are great, the benefits are great, it's close to your house and, and, and the work is right up your alley. And they want to interview you next Wednesday at nine o'clock in the morning at Starbucks. And so you're all excited for the interview and you get all dressed up on Wednesday morning and, and you head out there in your car and there's, but there's a lot of traffic and it's starting to slow you down and you thought you left enough time to get to the interview in time but now you're missing every light and it's beginning to look like you might be late to this hugely important interview. Well, you're kind of rushing but you get off the highway and Starbucks is right a mile or so down the road off the highway. You get to the bottom of the ramp and there's a light there and the light is green and then yellow and then it turns red and you want the guy in front of you just to go through but he doesn't. And so you're the second car sitting at this light and you're, now you're mad because you think you could have made it. 
and you're stewing, and the light just takes forever to turn, and it finally turns green, and the guy in front of you doesn't move. And you're like, come on, man, and you're like, i got to get to this interview. And so you're so angry, and you're so frustrated, you just lay on the horn as hard as you can. Womp, you know, like that. And the guy starts to move, but he goes real slow. And now you're thinking he's just being obnoxious on purpose now. So you're really ticked off now. So you just ride this guy's bumper out of pure spite all the way till you turn off at Starbucks. But then you notice that he turns into Starbucks too. You know the rest of the story, right? Yeah, this is the guy that was doing your interview. Now, is this a big mistake? This is a very big mistake. In, in all likelihood, this is an irreversible mistake. That This golden opportunity that you had, it finally came down the pike, and now you have thrown it away forever in a stupid fit of rage. Now, what Peter is accusing the people of Israel of doing here is a lot like that big mistake, only it's about a million times bigger. You see, ever since the Garden of Eden, so for thousands of years, humanity had been waiting for a promised Savior. And, and the nation of Israel had known for a long time that they were going to be the ones. They were going to be the channel, the human channel, through whom God would work to bless this world with the Savior. And for Israel, it was even more special because this Savior was also their king. He was the Messiah. He was the anointed one. He would be the very Son of God and would reign forever on the throne of his ancestor David. And all of their scriptures throughout the Old Testament, and all of their prophets, and all of their great national heroes, and really all of their history up until this point, thousands of years, had all been looking forward in one way or another to this single, solitary individual. This was the one. This was the guy. This was God's greatest promise and their only hope. And Peter is telling them, look, he finally came. God sent him to you. He, he was the fulfillment of all of the promises and all of the prophecies given to all of the previous generations. And you missed him. You missed it. You rejected him as your king. In fact, it's worse than that because not only did you reject him, but you killed him. In fact, you killed him in the most horrifying and brutal and agonizing way possible. You killed him on a Roman cross. In fact, it's worse than that because not only did you reject him, not only did you kill him, but, but Pontius Pilate, the Roman governor who was in charge of this whole thing and who knew he was innocent, gave you one chance to stop this train at the very end. One last chance. It was almost like God was, was double-checking with you and he was saying, are you sure you want to do this? Because in accordance with the customs of Passover, Pilate had offered to free one of the prisoners. And he gave you a choice of two. One of the two would be spared execution. The other would die. You could release Jesus, this innocent man who had come to save you, or you could release the most low-life criminal imaginable, a notorious and dangerous murderer, and you chose the murderer over the Messiah. Now, the level of evil inherent in that act is unprecedented. There has never been anything like it. Peter sums it up in one shocking phrase there in chapter 3, verse 15, when he says, you killed the author of life. I want you to think about that one for a second because that's a pretty deep statement, isn't it? You killed the author of life. How do you recover from that one? How, how, how can you be restored? How can you be refreshed when you've stopped up that fountain? 
How can you possibly get your life back when you've killed the author of life? This is the most dire condition. This is the most hopeless situation that the human race has ever faced. It's the end of the road. I mean, there's nothing left after you've killed God. Now, when you read the gospel accounts, they go into a little more detail about this Barabbas guy. Barabbas is the name of the guy that was released in place of Jesus. And Barabbas was in prison for murder and insurrection, which if you think about it, is pretty close to the two crimes that can get you executed in the United States, murder and treason, acting to overthrow the government. But if you think about it, it wasn't just Barabbas that was guilty of these crimes. Peter's listeners were also guilty of murder and insurrection. It didn't really matter that the nails had actually been driven in by the Roman soldiers. After the crowd had demanded that that Pilate release Barabbas instead of Jesus, Pilate asked them, he said, then what shall I do with the one called the king of the Jews? Remember what they yelled? Crucify him. There's murder. And then Pilate said, what? Shall I crucify your king? We have no king but Caesar. If that isn't only insurrection, but outright treason against the kingdom of God, I don't know what is. And before Peter goes on with the rest of his sermon, he wants to make sure that he drives this home. And what is the people's response to Peter's accusation? It tells us in chapter 2, verse 37. It says they were cut to the heart. They were cut to the heart. The phrase means to be emotionally stunned. Today we would say it hit them like a ton of bricks. It also means that you enter into a state of violent mental and emotional agitation. After you've been cut to the heart, you can't go to sleep. Not until you've done something to get some kind of peace in your life because you just can't go on like this. You're too unsettled. You're too upset. So let me ask you something. Have you ever been cut to the heart? Have you ever been cut to the heart? Has the awareness of the sinfulness in your own heart and life ever done to you what the Holy Spirit did to these people through the words of Peter? You see, it's hard to be cut to the heart today. It's it's actually pretty hard because our modern world has done such a tremendous job of explaining away our sin, right? I mean, what we used to call sin is now dysfunctional behavior brought on by less than ideal circumstances or it's uh, some kind of psychological illness and guilt what is guilt well guilt is now explained away as an inappropriate emotion that we just need to break free of but don't you find sometimes that it's kind of hard to swallow the world's reasoning there that it's kind of hard to swallow those excuses because it's hard to read the news today without believing in some level of just raw human evil If we throw away the idea of sin, it becomes impossible to classify or understand many of the horrible things that we see people doing to each other seemingly on a regular basis. But what about our own sin? Well, as for our own sin, it's hard to really feel bad about it anymore unless we might think about what it does to other people. Then we kind of feel bad about it. But if you think about it, who's really hurt the most by your sin? Is it the other people? Is it yourself? Let me ask you one more disturbing question while I'm asking you disturbing questions, okay? Who was it that really killed Jesus? 
who really killed Jesus. Uh, I, I first felt the call to ministry when, when I was at a huge student missions conference uh, at Urbana, Illinois back in 1987. And I, I can remember all the speakers at that conference and, and a lot of the things that they said. In fact, I, have, I can tell you who all of them were. I, I listened to the, the cassette tapes of those talks so many times over and over again. And the last speaker at that conference was a, a lady by the name of Rebecca Pippert. And she had written a book, an, a book on evangelism called Out of the Salt Shaker and Into the World. So great title even for a book, you know. But, but Rebecca Pippert, she was talking, and actually Becky, as she's called, she told a story that night that I remember still really well. And um, what happened was she, she talked about how she was speaking at a conference one time and a woman came up to her and this woman was absolutely tortured and just racked with guilt. And it turns out that what had happened was this, this young woman uh, years ago had aborted her unborn child. And although she knew Jesus as her Savior, she just could not live with herself. She couldn't come to terms with this. She, she had come under the conviction that she had murdered her own baby and she didn't know what to do about it. And in describing this experience, Becky Pippert says, I, I suddenly felt, prompt, felt prompted to say something to this young woman, but I hesitated because I knew that if I was wrong, what I was about to say could absolutely destroy her. But she felt she needed to say it anyway, and what she said was this, you need to know something. This isn't your first murder. Now, is that true? Did that young woman kill Jesus? Because if she did, then so did I. And so did you. I mean, if, if you trace everything back to the source, and Peter makes this clear, it wasn't the Romans or the Jews who did it because it was God the Father who cooked up this whole plan in the first place, right? But why did he have to do it? Well, he didn't have to do it unless that is he loved me so much that he'd want to save me at the cost of watching his only son get nailed to a tree. It was my sin that put Jesus on the cross and yours. It would not have happened if not for that. If I hadn't committed spiritual treason against the God who made me. Think about it. Whatever crimes I have perpetrated in my life, whatever impure thoughts, whatever, whatever vicious words, whatever evil deeds that I have done, and there are plenty of them, they are all expressions of an attitude that is lodged deep within my heart, that rejects the most loving and glorious being in the universe, and instead it says, I have no king but Paul. That's the essence of sin, and it's treason, and it's worthy of death, but somebody else died for it instead of me. Now, I don't know if you agree with that or not when it comes to your own life. You may think that what I'm saying is totally over the top, but I don't think it is. As much as your sin destroys your own life and hurts others, how often do you think about what it does to God? Because it's devastating. I want to share with you a kind of an extended quote here from a teacher that I really admire. This is from Dr. Robertson McQuilkin, and this is a chapter in a book that he wrote, and it's about the nature of sin. And it goes like this. McQuilkin says, Above all, Sin harms God. Were it not for sin, there need be no cross, and who can fathom the depths of pain in the Father and in the Son? The Son identifying with all that is His opposite, our sin and corruption. The inevitable result, separation. The incredible plan of God that the Father and Son should suffer our judgment, 
our just separation from a holy God. Until this result of sin is seen in sharp focus, the enormity of it, the vile iniquity of it, the stark horror of it can be but dimly understood. He goes on, many years passed after I knew my sins were forgiven before I shed a single tear over those sins. The result of sin in my own life was disturbing. The result of my sin in the lives of those I loved was a grief. But not till I began to sense what my sin had done to the Father and the Son did my heart break in deep contrition. God has died. If this does not startle us, what will? As St. Augustine said, O man, consider the greatness of your sin by the greatness of the price paid for it. McQuilkin concludes, Sin destroys the sinner, harms others, and hung the Son of God in agony and shame in the dark shadow of his Father's rejection. This is the result of your sin and mine. But, I have some good news. That is not the end of the story. So far, what we've got now is the Son of God lying in the ground, dead. Crushed by an enormous weight. Uh, you can go ahead and think of that ship from the Suez Canal just lying right on top of Jesus, okay? But that wouldn't even be enough for the illustration because a mere half a billion pounds is not enough to represent the weight of our sin. You would need way more containers than the ever given could ever hold. Now that ship was a pretty big weight. But at the end of the day, all it took was a team of engineers, about a million pounds of mud dredged to about a 60-foot depth, a fleet of tugboats and a special full moon that brought the tides about 18 inches higher than normal. That's what happened. And it was freed. But you know what? The weight on Jesus was bigger. How do you lift that weight? How do you budge that obstacle? How, how do you pay that cost? How in the world do you ever get out from under that? Now after the Sabbath... Toward the end of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, there was a great earthquake, for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. But the angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. He is risen just as he said. I've heard people talk about that stone before and just the weight of it, how heavy that, that stone would be that was rolled away from the entrance to the tomb that morning. But you know what? After the weight that Jesus had already lifted, the weight of your sin and mine, I'll bet that stone just kind of blew right up the hill, you know? Kind of like those little packing peanuts that, that blow around the floor of my garage in a draft when they get away, you know? That's what the stone was like after that. It turns out that even that weight, even the weight of a million stuck cargo ships full of sin, was no match for the power and the holiness and the glory and the love of Jesus Christ for you and for me. Can you imagine how the people must have felt that morning listening to Peter at that kind of climactic point in his sermon? Because when they were cut to the heart, what they did was they said, what shall we do? And if you think about it, by all rights, you think that Peter should have just said, what do you mean, what shall you do? You can't do anything. It's over. You're doomed. You blew it. But that's not what he said. Instead, he uttered the most beautiful word these people had ever heard. You know what it was? Repent. Now, 
We don't think of that as a beautiful word. We think of it as a crusty, old, intolerant, religious word, right? But it's not. It's a beautiful word because repentance is a gift. And it was a gift that God was offering these people on that day as they were listening to Peter preach. They're, they should have been like, wait. And they were. We can repent. We can re- really? We can repent? You mean this isn't the end of the road? This isn't the point of no return? There's actually a way out of this thing? We can be forgiven and restored to God? No way. Are you serious? How is this possible? I thought we killed the author of life. Yeah, you did. But he came back from the dead. It turns out that all that murder and all that treason and the betrayal and everything else we could pile onto him was not enough to keep him in the ground because, as Peter says, it was impossible for death to keep a hold on him. And it's the same good news for you today as it was for those people back then. Even though our sin, yes, does make us murderous traitors because the impossible has been accomplished, the the infinite weight has been lifted, the infinite burden has been borne, the infinite cost has been paid, and we are now free to repent. We are free to turn back to God and to be forgiven and received as innocent people. And beyond that, God actually offers to adopt us as his own sons and daughters and put us in his own family. That's how wonderful our God is, and that's how awesome this thing is that Jesus has accomplished. But in order for us to benefit from what Jesus has done, the first thing we need to do is to own up to what we have done that made it necessary for him to do it. And that's not fun because it isn't, it isn't a fun thing to face up to our sinfulness, to own up to the, the frightening reality, not just of how horrible it was, the worst things that we've done, but, but the fact that uh, even the twisted and impure motives behind even the best things that we've done. Isaiah says it this way, even our righteousness is like filthy rags. And so we don't want to go there. Who would want to go there? But, and yet when we do go there, When we do go there, what we find is that as deep as our sin goes, God's grace goes even deeper. As vile as our sin may be, God's mercy and forgiveness can handle it. And that's because no matter what you've done, no matter how heavy the burden is that you've created, no matter how twisted and complex the problems are that you've caused, and no matter how much pain you have caused to yourself and to other people and even to God himself, as bad as that is, it was not enough to keep Jesus Christ in the ground. Now this may sound kind of counterintuitive at first, but some of the most joyful Christians I know are the ones who are the most aware of their own sinfulness. What happened is they owned up to all the ugliness of their sin and all the brokenness and dysfunction in their lives, and what they found out is that God's forgiveness extended that far and then some. As Jesus himself said, he who loves but a little. Or he who is forgiven just a little only loves a little. But he who has been forgiven much loves much. Did you ever wonder what it was like for Barabbas when he found out very suddenly that he was a free man? I mean, we don't think about him a whole lot. There's no record of anything like that in the Bible, like what happened to him. But, 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 But did you ever wonder what he did after Pilate let him go? I mean, Barabbas is usually pictured in the movies and stuff as this kind of animalistic character that's just running around wanting to kill the next person or whatever. But but what if if Barabbas 
actually decided not to run away, but to hang around to see what the outcome of all this was. Here's a weird thought. What if Barabbas repented and got saved? I mean, it doesn't say that happened, but hypothetically speaking, what if he did? Would that be okay with you? What if just out of curiosity, Barabbas followed along with that crowd on Good Friday morning and then he went with them up to Calvary? What if he watched the flogging of Jesus and he watched Jesus carry that cross up that hill and get nailed to it? And then what if all of a sudden Barabbas was cut to the heart thinking, wait, that's my cross. That was supposed to be me. That's what it's like when the Holy Spirit gets hold of your heart and shows you the weight of your sin. But it's okay for you to go there. If you're a Christian this morning, and I need to tell you, tell you something, you may have already discovered this, but to be a Christian is to repent for a lifetime. It's just a lifestyle of repentance because you always find new things. If you're a Christian this morning, do not be afraid to face up to the things that you may have swept under the rug, either because it's too uncomfortable for you to think about or somehow you think that it's just too intense for God to handle because it's not. It's not. And if you're not a believer in Jesus this morning, I want you to hear an invitation today, okay? It's an invitation that does not come from me. It comes from God himself. Here's what he is saying to you. Every offense can be forgiven. Every offense can be forgiven. Even murder, even treason, every stain can be blotted out because the price has been paid, the burden has been lifted, and you are free now to own up to your sin, to cast it upon the cross of Christ, and to run into the arms of your heavenly Father and to get a new life. Why? Because Jesus whom we crucified, is no longer in the grave. He is risen, just as he said he would. Let's pray, and then I'm going to ask the worship team to come and lead us in part of one final song. If you have been cut to the heart this morning, if you have come face to face with your own sinfulness as well as what Christ did on the cross and by coming back from the grave, then I want you to feel free to come up and talk to me and just interrupt me if I'm in a conversation with somebody else. <laughs> or you can talk to Jesse up here. You can talk to anyone that you trust that you know is a believer around you. But I don't want you to leave this place until you've really met and found forgiveness and new life in Christ. Father, thank you that even though we can plumb the depths in our own sinfulness, and Lord, we don't even know how deep it goes, but you do. And your grace and your mercy and your, your forgiveness goes even deeper than that. We cannot outsend your grace. Lord, I pray that people here that need to, to, to receive that gift of repentance that you give would do so this morning. And Lord, for those of us who are already believers, it's a matter of sometimes seeing another layer of the onion get peeled off and, and we find that you're looking to 
continue to change our lives and you're asking us to continue to repent. But Lord, you're assuring us that the, the, the blood that was shed, the price that was paid, remains enough. In fact, more than enough. That your love is still for us. That your face of grace and mercy is still shining on us. And that when Jesus came back from the dead, we were justified. And we are still declared innocent in your sight. Thank you for that wonderful news. In Jesus' name, amen.